Do you really believe in the resurrection? Do you? So I, I've been studying this text of Scripture. I believe in the resurrection. You know, yesterday we had the message on children or young men or fathers and talked about how if you're convinced, you're convinced. There's nothing somebody's going to sh- say that would shake your faith that would cause you to question. I am convinced, 100% convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is nothing anybody could say that would cause me to say, oh, wait a second, I have thought about that. My faith is now in question. But as I've been studying this text, it's been encouraging to me again just to look at all the reasons, all of the logical reasons, all of the evidence, all of the text, the love that Christ has exhibited in reassuring and reaffirming, not that there was ever a doubt, that the resurrection is legit. And if the resurrection happened, that changes the way you should live every day of your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But if there is a resurrection, if Jesus truly did die on the cross for our sins, pay the penalty for us, go to the grave, get up out of the grave, ascend to the Father, if he's coming again, if there's a judgment, then we have an obligation to tell the world about the good news. It's not the bad news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, of how you can be reconciled to your creator. That's our obligation. That's our duty. Do you believe in the resurrection? Maybe a better question. Does your life demonstrate that you believe in the resurrection? And that's where every now and then I think we all have to say, ah, there are days. There are times when I choose my sin over God's glory. There are times when I elevate myself over worshiping a risen Savior. There are times when I focus on me, not on him. So that got me thinking. There are events in life that change you, right? In my life, I think about the events that have changed me, and I think about the fact of when I asked my wife to marry me. That was a life-changing event because she said yes. If she had said no, that would have been another story, but she said yes, life-changing event. I think about our adoption of my oldest daughter, life-changing event. I think about the birth of my son, life-changing event. I think about accepting Jesus as Savior, life-changing event. Do you have life-changing events in your life as well? I thought about an event that was impactful, but I kind of got over it. And this is kind of embarrassing, but I'll tell you about it anyway. You can have fun with it. When I was three years old, my dad was out in the backyard, and we had had a chain, and some moss had grown up in this chain. And he took the chain and put it in our driveway, the cement area of the driveway, and was burning the moss out of the chain. It was all crinkled up and he couldn't get it untangled. And so he had burned the moss out of this chain. So this chain was red hot. It had been in the fire. He thought that was the easiest way to get it fixed. He pulled the chain across the driveway and mom and dad, so they tell me, told me, stay in the house, don't come outside the house. We're outside, he's outside burning that. Well, I I wanted to be with dad. I mean, a little boy wants to be with his dad sometimes. And I was a stubborn little boy that didn't listen very much. Anybody out there relate to that? Yeah. Yeah, and so I learned how to open the screen door, push the screen door open, and took off running to go see dad, barefoot. You already figured it out. I went and stepped in my genius three-year-old years right on the red-hot chain on the bottom of my foot. Now, I don't know how long I stood there. I was three. I don't remember the story. I've heard the story, but here's what I do know. It was years after that that I would not take off shoes for anything other than to go to bed or take a bath. 
I'm not kidding. So think about the implications of that. I'm 10 years old, and we go to a hotel with a swimming pool. We bring an extra set of tennis shoes. Because when I'm in the swimming pool, I've got tennis shoes on. In my three-year-old brain, I had determined that the way to fix this problem so that it would never happen again is never take shoes off. And so there was a life-changing moment that affected me, and it still has some impact on me, but it's not the same. I mean, I did karate, take shoes off to do that. I don't have to wear shoes all the time now, but I do most of the time. So when you see me in the morning, I get up, I change clothes, I get ready, I put my shoes on. That's what I do. All day long, there are shoes on my feet. I don't like to take shoes off. When I went on a mission trip to Korea and they had us take shoes off, I didn't like that part. All right, I could eat the bad food. I could eat kimchi. I could eat octopus. I do all that type stuff. Fish with the eyeball still in it. Take my shoes off to go in the, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> You're pushing me here, all right? Cross-cultural communication has its, its limits, I'll go into somebody's house, and if you've ever been to my house, and, and many of you have, especially the soccer team, when the soccer girls come over, they take their shoes off, they'll pile their shoes up at the door, and I'm sitting here looking at that going, why? I mean, I'm not taking my shoes off, and we've got two dogs in the house, and so that was a life-changing event that affected me, but I kind of got over it. And I'm wondering this morning, is, is the resurrection... Is your acceptance of Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, is that an event that perhaps changed your life and then perhaps you've gotten over it a little bit? Perhaps you have moved to where it's not as impactful on you now as it once was. Perhaps you have grown comfortable with the fact that we can sing praises to a risen Savior, a Savior that has changed your life and my life. Perhaps you've grown a little bit too complacent too familiar, perhaps, with the resurrection? So today, what I hope will happen as we look at this, as we continue our series in We Believe, and for those of you that are here for See You Friday, all year we've been going through We Believe. We just happen to be on We Believe in the Resurrection the week after Easter, but it still works because we believe in the resurrection every day of the year, not just on Easter Sunday. Christ is the resurrected King every single day, not just Easter. And so we are at our sermon series now in the portion of We Believe in the Resurrection. So some people want to make you believe or tell you that the resurrection came from other cultural events or from other things. So I've got a few quotes from some scholars here before we jump into our text. And our text for today is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 15. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your tablets, you have your notebooks, open them up. If you got your phone, scroll to the right app, click on the right app, scroll to Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Open up your Bibles and we'll go there. Here's the first quote for you. Some people want to say that we got this from other cultures. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says, quote, insofar as the ancient non-Jewish world had a Bible, its Old Testament was Homer. And insofar as Homer has anything to say about the resurrection, he's quite blunt, it doesn't happen. William Lane Craig, commenting on the Jews and the notion that perhaps it came from the Jews, says, quote, the notion of a genuine resurrection occurring prior to God's bringing about the world's end, the end of the world, would have been foreign to them. Scholar Edwin Yamaguchi says, he stated that there was no possibility of the idea of a resurrection that was borrowed because there was no definitive evidence for the teaching of a deity resurrection in any of the mystery religions prior to the second century. So where did the resurrection come from? I think the resurrection came from 
eyewitnesses who recorded the resurrection in the pages of Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15, records Matthew's account of the resurrection. You have Mark's account, you have Luke's account, you have John's account. They are slightly different. The fact that they are slightly different indicates to us they did not get together and collaborate on their information to get their story straight. They told you from their points of view, from their study of history, from the relationships which they had either to Jesus or to Peter or to Paul, that they told you their version of what happened. There's enough difference in it to make it reliable and believable. And yet today, we don't have time to explore all of them. We really don't even have time to explore in depth one of them. We really only have time to scratch the surface of some of the proofs for the resurrection and how we can believe in it. But I hope in the brief time that we have, you will catch a glimpse of the resurrected Savior and that that will affect anew and afresh the way you live your life each and every day. That it will affect your satisfaction in God, that it will affect your desire to live a life that glorifies God, that it will affect your ability to be comfortable in who you are as God has created you with the gifts you have to use for his glory. So that's our hope as we look at Matthew chapter 28. And in honor of the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Now, after the Sabbath toward the dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Dear Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would help us just to catch a glimpse of who you are, that, Lord, you would help us to live life in the reality of the resurrection. First, in your name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. Our text starts off and says, now after the Sabbath, so it is the third day, it's the third day that has arisen It's the third day that Jesus has told us would be the day that he would rebuild the temple of his body. It's the third day that he has told us no sign but the sign of Jonah as you have come out. The third day is here, and the text records that towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So we start off with the ladies. We see Mary Magdalene, Mark 16, 9, tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out from her. We see Mary, the mother of James the Less, here recorded And we know that according to Matthew 27, 61, these two were sitting opposite the tomb when the stone was rolled in place. They were devastated. 
You can imagine, for those of you that have lost a loved one, being in the position of sitting and watching the tomb as it was been rolled with a stone covering the front of it, and then you go home for the Sabbath, the mandatory rest, you come back as quickly as you can, and you're there again, not knowing how you're going to move the stone, hoping you could find somebody, hoping one last time to be able to put some spices on a body, knowing that in this time, even with the resurrection of Lazarus, that the body would decay and they were worried about the stench. And so as a, as a last final act of love of something they could do and in a dire need, as they were mourning to do something, they show back up at the tomb and they come to show their love and concern for Jesus one last time. It's not just the two of them. As Mark records, Salome was also included. Luke includes Joanna and so perhaps others with them as the two Marys recorded in Matthew's testimony of this show up at the tomb. And it says when they showed up at the tomb that there was a great earthquake. Now we often flow through this passage and move quickly to the more exciting stuff, the action scenes. But what I don't want you to miss before we flow to some of those action scenes is this. If this was a story that was being made up, You would not make up a story in this day and time and have your first two witnesses be female. In this day and time, the courts, women were not even allowed to testify and give legitimate testimony. And so Matthew here is telling the story and the first two witnesses that he's gonna give us the information by is Mary and Mary. He's giving us two female witnesses. If you're making up a story, if you're fabricating a lie, you're gonna sit down and fabricate that lie in such a way to say, how can I make this lie believable? If you want the lie to be believable, you're gonna have the best witness you possibly could. And here we see that Matthew is just telling us, like it happened when he tells us that there were two females there. Now, there's another point that we shouldn't miss as we move to the action section of this is that Jesus, in his grace, throughout his ministry, Jesus treated women far better than any of the society around him. And you move to the resurrection and Jesus, in his grace, revealed himself in the resurrected body to women first and told them to go and tell the brothers, to go and tell the disciples. We see here that Jesus treated women in an equal way that Jesus understood men and women are created in the image of God and that they have equal worth and value and substance before him. And so here in a society and a culture where even our presidential candidates are demeaning women, we need to understand that true Christianity does not do that. True Christianity knows that male and female are created in the image of God and we are created for his purposes and we are created to complement one another, but we are created equal in substance. We are created for equal access to salvation and to God. And anybody that demeans a woman with a male chauvinistic, doministic way is not a godly Christian. You should clap for that. I mean, I'm just saying. Because think about what Jesus did. He was against the culture and doing what was right. What are we to do? We're to do what's right. It doesn't matter if the culture likes it or doesn't like it. We do it in a right way. We do it in a godly way. We do it in a loving way, but we do what's right. And here you see Jesus doing exactly that. And in his grace, you see what's happened. And then you see some of the action take place here. They come to the tomb. Here at the tomb, there's a great earthquake. It's coming. Oh, but we can't miss it. Because we have the tomb. Whose tomb? You know the answer to the question. Whose tomb was it? Joseph of Arimathea. 
Why is that detail included? If you were fabricating a story and you didn't want somebody to be able to verify exactly whose tomb it was, to be able to go and check, you wouldn't include the exact name of the tomb, the person who owned the tomb, the person who had bought the tomb, you would just say there was a tomb. And he was in it, and then he wasn't, and there were witnesses. But here they include Joseph of Arimathea. What's even more embarrassing to the disciples is that he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of those who actually voted to kill Jesus, except we don't think he was present at the time. And we understand that in Acts 6-7, many of the priests came to know the Lord, and perhaps he was already a follower of Christ, and many other priests came to know the Lord, which is perhaps how we know this entire story, this entire narrative of what happened with the soldiers talking to the priests. But here we see a detail that's included in the story that could have been verified at this time. If Matthew was not telling the truth, it would have been very easy for somebody to go to Joseph of Arimathea and say, was this your tomb? Did this happen? Did they put him in it? Was he not in it at the end? It would have been easy to verify. Here we see a detail and then we see an earthquake. Can you imagine the scene? The same earth that had already seen an earthquake previously, the same earth that had obeyed the voice of the creator since the beginning, the same earth that had felt the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah, the same earth where the waters had parted at the Red Sea so the children of Israel could go across on dry ground, the same earth that had experienced the flood and the judgment of God in that way, the same earth that had opened up to swallow those who opposed Moses, the same earth that had stopped spinning so that a battle could be won, the same earth where fire consumed on Mount Carmel, the same earth where Jesus looked out and told the winds and the waves, peace, be still, still took commands from the Savior and the earth began to quake, symbolizing something is about to happen. Not only did the earth quake, but the angel came. It says the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angels do his bidding. This is Jesus who said I could call down scores of angels if I desired to do so, but, but that's not what I desire to do. It's the angels that are innumerable. Uh, the Bible tells us there are 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. They're not even Greek words to adequately express how many angels there are. And angels do the bidding of the Lord. God says to the angel, go and tell the shepherds not to fear. There's a baby born in Bethlehem. God tells the angels, go and tell Mary and them not to fear. And by the way, roll away that big stone so they can look inside and see that he's no longer there. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. He was already gone. He was already in a resurrected body and had gone through the walls just as he appeared in the upper room and was able to go through the walls there. Jesus did not need the stone to be rolled away. We needed the stone to be rolled away so that we could see for ourselves that Jesus was not there. The angels do his very bidding. The angels that pronounced the birth now pronounce the resurrection. And here it says they came and they rolled back the stone and then they sat on it. I think that's a little bit funny. The stone that was rolled in front of the tomb to keep Jesus in then becomes the seat where the angel gets to sit to watch what happens as people come to look and see that Jesus is no longer there. He rolls the stone away and he says to himself, I need a place to sit down and watch this. This is going to be fun. I'm going to sit on the stone. Looks over at the soldiers. What are the soldiers doing? I don't know. It says they were shaking. They were like dead men. Maybe they fell down. Maybe they were standing at this time. We don't know. Angels looking over, having a little fun. Perhaps the angel remembers the command the soldiers were given when it said, go make the tomb as secure as you can. 
Now, if that's not the most impossible command ever given to a set of soldiers, go make the tomb secure. Put a big stone in front of it. Seal it up. You stand guard. You're the best soldiers in the world. And all of a sudden, an angel comes down, light lightning and white appearance, and the soldiers are there like dead men and cannot move. These are the angels. It's not the angels that you see in the Middle Ages that look like little bitty fat babies with wings on the back of them that sit around. These are not the angels we're talking about in this text. It's not the angels that you may see that look like they could do nothing but but tell you everything's okay and, and stroke your hair and make you feel comfortable. These are angels of war. This is an angel that looks like lightning. This is an angel in shining white apparel that when the soldiers, the best soldiers of the known world at that time see this angel, they can't move. They are awestruck. The Lord commands the angels to do his bidding, angels with infinitely more power than we could ever think or possess. Here we see in verse four, it continues on. It says, for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This is funny too. The guards, the living guards who were placed to guard the dead, have you ever heard of guarding the dead? Maybe it's the tomb of the unknown soldier. Maybe that's a symbolic way in which we, we guard the dead. But guarding the dead so that the dead don't get up, that's not why they're there. To guard the dead, you remember well Matthew 27, 63 and 64, where they were talking to Pilate. It's just right up above if you want to look in this text. And it says to them, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together and they told him, he said, after three days, I will rise. And, and they said, go make it secure until the third day. You have a guard of soldiers. And so they had these soldiers. They told them to make it as secure as they possibly could. The soldiers are there to guard the dead. So the living place to guard the dead appear as dead while the dead man, they were there, the guard is living. So the live are acting like the dead. The dead is now alive. And there is a great oxymoron in scripture. It is important here that we look at what the text says because it tells them the angel looked at the women and said, do not fear. Don't miss this in the text. It's all throughout the text. It's throughout the text when he's talking to shepherds, do not be afraid. It's here, do not be afraid. It's when Jesus meets the women in a few verses down, do not be afraid. We have a tendency to be afraid. We have a tendency to worry, what's the world gonna think of us? What are people gonna think about us? What's someone gonna say about me if I truly live for Jesus? And here we understand this. The angel says to them, don't be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. The angel didn't tell the guards not to be afraid. The angel told the women not to be afraid. And here he says to us today through the text as well, do not be afraid. He says to them, for I know you seek the Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Oh, and that's the first point that you cannot miss in this text as you look at it. It is he is not here. The next point we'll get to is the lie that supports the resurrection. But the first point here is he is not here for he has risen as he said. Look at what it says. It says, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen. There's a good motion for us. There's a good application for us. There's a good action item for us. He says, come and see and then go and tell. We have the same command. Come to the cross, see and experience the goodness of salvation and then go and tell others about it. Experience and see for yourself the gospel. 
the gospel that reconciles you to your creator, then go and tell others what has happened. Go and tell others about the God who has reconciled mankind to himself. Come and see and then go and tell. That is our commission as well. And that is all of our commission to have those gospel conversations. Wherever God sends you in the world, wherever God sends you on an internship this summer, wherever God sends you in that first job positioning, whatever may happen, God has given you a command that as you have come to see the gospel and the resurrected Christ, then go and tell others about him. Here it says, do not be afraid, come and see and then go and tell. Verse seven, it says, quickly go and tell that he is risen from the dead and behold, he is going to Galilee. There you will see him, see I have told you. Look at what happens in verse eight. It says in verse eight, so they departed quickly. They departed from the tomb, look what it says, with fear and great joy. Now, it's easy for me to tell you don't be afraid. And in a chapel service with over 3,000 people singing praises to the Lord, reading his word, maybe it's easy not to be afraid. But when you get out into the workforce, when you get out into the mission field, when you get out into that internship, when you get out as the new employee in that place of service that the Lord has placed you, it's not as easy not to be afraid. They left even from that moment with fear. But notice what else they left with. They left with great joy. Their sorrow turned to fear. Their fear began to turn to great joy. And that great joy will eventually turn to worship in our next few verses. As they were moving forward, they ran and behold, Jesus met them. Why did Jesus meet them? The angel told him, he's not here. Go tell the disciples, meet him in Galilee. The order had been given. They left quickly. They were going to do what they were told. They had great joy, but Jesus knew they also had fear. And a few steps down the road of obedience, Jesus met them. And perhaps that's where you need to be today is moving a few steps down the road to obedience where Jesus will meet your need as well. Perhaps you have a need of fear or you have a need that Jesus can meet. And here we see that Jesus in his grace to these women understood them and he met them and he said to them, greetings with an exclamation point. He's excited. And they came and what did they do? They took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Sorrow to fear, to joy, to worship. And here then it says, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. He knew their fear. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Again, go and tell, and they will see me there. Here we understand that some want you to believe that Jesus had a swoon theory, that Jesus just passed out or that Jesus pretended to be dead. And then he went to the grave and then for some reason he was able to, to come back and he was able to heal. They didn't meet a Jesus on this road that looked like he was about to die, that was recovering from wounds of a spear and thorns and all of these other things. They didn't meet a Jesus that was hunched over. They met a Jesus that said greetings to them and they grabbed him and worshiped him. They met a Jesus just like the others met a Jesus where they didn't say he survived. They said, we have seen the resurrected Jesus. They knew this was the resurrected body and that was assuring them of their resurrection. There is no logical swoon theory that works when you look at this text. This was not a hallucination. Some people want to say, well, these were grief appearances or grief hallucinations. That's not what we believe because you look at the text and you're going to say to them, multiple people at the same time had the exact same hallucination. Multiple women grabbed a hold of Jesus' feet. They had the exact same hallucination. That doesn't happen. That's not what takes place. 500 or more in Galilee when he's giving them the Great Commission have the exact same hallucination. That's unbelievable. That's harder to believe than the fact that there was an actual resurrection. Jesus told them, do not fear. 
What is your fear this morning that Jesus is ministering to? What is your fear right now that you need to take to the cross, that you need to take in prayer to God to overcome? We see here point number two, beginning in verses 11 through 15. It's the lie that supports the resurrection. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard. Notice here that guards were present. The lie that they concoct in the text here is to say that the disciples stole the body while they were sleeping. The lie they concoct is not that there were no guards ever there. They grant that fact that there were guards present at the tomb. They also grant the fact that it was multiple guards present at the tomb. And the text here says that some of the guard went to the city. And the guard there is still plural. So we know, we don't know for sure how many, but we know there were at least enough so that the guard could divide up. Some would go one way, some would go another, and it still would be plural. So perhaps as few as four, but perhaps many more guards were at the tomb. So these guards, the best soldiers of their time, some of them went to the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Can you imagine the scenario? Sir, I have a report. Standing guard at the tomb as you commissioned us, we'd made it secure, sir. The ground began to shake. There was a flash like lightning. We saw an angel in white apparel, some extraterrestrial being, perhaps, who rolled back the heavy stone and then sat on it and stared at us. It was as if we were in chains, we could not move. He had control of our bodies and our minds. We were shaking in terror. We did not know what could happen. We could not control ourselves to stop them, sir. Two ladies approached and we heard him tell them that the Jesus was not there, that he had risen, told them to come and look and then go and tell. As frightened as we were when they left, perhaps they even snuck a peek for themselves to see if Jesus was really there. Sir, I'm here to tell you there were linens in there that were laying I don't know what happened. Nobody unwrapped the body and left the linens to the side. Nobody came. We were there standing guard. We were doing our obligation. Sir, I promise you, we would not have come and told you if we did not do our job because we understand the penalty for not doing our job. I don't know what to tell you to explain this, but as odd as it may seem, I believe he is risen. Oh, that can't be. They hear the words They don't reject them. They don't say to them, no, guard, you must be mistaken. Neither do they accept Christ. Instead, what we see here is they told the chief priest all is they got together and had a huddle. We've got a problem. Let's talk about this. And then they gathered a sufficient sum of money and told the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, the guards, obviously, knowing that if they say this and it gets back that they were sleeping they were going to be in trouble. And so they tell them in the following verse, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread even to this day. The chief priest could not accept the truth of the gospel. We will encounter people in our lives that cannot accept the truth of the gospel, not because the facts are not present, but if you look at this in particular, if the high priest had accepted the truth of the gospel, he would immediately be out of a job. He would immediately be going into a career change. So instead, they came up with a lie, and in that lie, they admitted that there were guards present, and they admitted that the tomb was empty. They just changed it so that the disciples stole the body for a sum of money. 
How much money would it take for you to tell a lie about Jesus today? Is there a sum that you could be bought for? Is there a lie that you would believe? Does their lie even work? Think about it. You mean the disciples came and stole the body away. Those fishermen and tax collectors and others who denied Jesus before a little girl at a fire who didn't show up to rescue him from the cross because they were not bold enough to attempt the rescue on the cross while he was still alive. Instead, they decide to come with soldiers and a stone rolled in front of the tomb and they're gonna steal him at night. You mean that group of cowards showed up to steal the body so they could perpetrate a lie? Seriously, you mean to tell me that the guards fell asleep at the same time knowing that there's a penalty for falling asleep. You mean to tell me you remained asleep while they rolled this stone away? That you remained asleep while they took this dead body, unwrapped all of these linens, folded these linens back up, put these linens back over to the side. How did they do this, by the way? It was dark. Did they have light? You stayed asleep while they had this light? Oh, and by the way, if you were asleep, how did you see it was the disciples that did it? I wasn't there, but I have a solution for you. The solution for it is contained in Matthew 20, 19, where he said, I will be raised on the third day. It's a much more believable solution than what the soldiers were telling. The excuse they were to give was one that they said happened, and they were there to prevent that exact thing from happening. That was why they were stationed at the tomb. And yet that is the lie that they perpetrate. The chief priests don't even deny the resurrection. When we see them again in Acts 4 and we see them talking to Peter or John, they don't deny that there was a resurrection. Acts 2, 32 and 33 tells us that Peter says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. So why should you believe in the resurrection in closing? Women were the first witnesses. You don't make up a story and put something of that nature in the details of that day and time. Matthew 28, 1. The tomb owner was named Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, 57. It is a detail given that is verifiable that you can go check. It's not some vague story that doesn't have the details. These primary documents were not written in a vacuum. These were primary sources. When you have a question and you're doing scholarship and you're doing research, the best thing you can do is go back to the primary sources. You don't look at secondary sources and what they've told you about the primaries. You go back to the primary sources and do the research for yourself. These are primary sources. This is Matthew who walked with Jesus. He's telling you these details. The lie, it makes no sense and concedes that both guards were present and that the tomb is empty. Number four, the life and testimony of the disciples. They preached the resurrection. You see that in all of these verses in Acts. They gave their lives for the gospel. No prosperity, no power, but poverty and persecution is what they received. They didn't tell a lie so that they would get rich. In fact, a Harvard Law scholar from ancient years ago in 1864 wrote a book examining the evidence from a law perspective. And he says this about the gospels. He says, quote, it is impossible that the disciples, they could have persisted in affirming the truths they have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had not they known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. The disciples dealing with external pressure of persecution Dealing with the poverty because they could not hold down jobs. They were traveling to various locations. They were, they were telling people about the gospel. Could not deal with an internal conflict of knowing they were living a lie, of knowing they were being deceptive, and carry this out until their death. It makes no logical sense by human nature that they would live this type of lie. Jesus appeared to many. 
We see him appearing to Mary. We see him on the Emmaus Road. We see him in the upper room. We see him in the confrontation with Thomas. We see him at Galilee. We see him at the ascension. And Paul in 1 Corinthians add, when he talks about the appearances of Christ, most of whom are still living, Paul is basically saying to you, if you don't believe me, go ask them. They're still alive. He's saying there are witnesses out there who saw the risen Christ. The Old Testament and Jesus predicted it. In Psalm 16:10, Jesus predicted his own resurrection in Matthew 12 and in John 2. It's recorded for us. The gospel and the resurrection of Christ changed the world. Obstacles should have stopped Christianity, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing could control it. The feast we celebrate transitioned from celebrating the Passover to the Lord's Supper. The day we worshiped on transitioned from Saturday, the day of rest, to Sunday, the day of the resurrected king. The very calendar we use has been transitioned by the resurrection. I'm here to tell you today, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. It changes every day the way you live your life. We believe we serve a resurrected Savior. Our verse, as we've been going through it, is Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, culture comes and culture goes, Critics come and critics die. We are a vapor and then we're gone. But the word of our God will stand forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in the truth of the resurrection. Father, help us to have a confidence Not in ourselves, Lord, but a confidence and humility of our service to a risen king, a king that has ascended and a king that is coming again. And Lord, we thank you for your word which testifies to that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.